Welcome to Mansplaining, a podcast about the interesting things you can discover if you just take the time to learn. My name is Joe, I'm your host for this week, and as always, I'm joined by my college friend Mark. Together, we'll explore what's on our minds and hopefully figure out a thing or two about a thing or two. Mark, I know I told you this off the air already, but I'm just stunned at how much traction the issue of AI-generated art has gotten in the media since we taped our episode on that subject three weeks ago today. Yeah. It seems wherever I go, I'm hearing or reading about it in the newspaper, on the radio, on TV. Right, yeah. Uh, it just really seems like we nailed it with the the cultural valence of this issue. I mean, do you have any thoughts about that? We definitely caught a big wave on its way into the shore. Just this morning, I was listening to a podcast where two Hollywood institutions were discussing whether or not AI would soon be writing screenplays for Hollywood. So it's, it's very much in the conversation. I think it's because people are realizing what we realized when we did the podcast, which is that there's been really a leap in terms of quality where AI generated text used to be a joke just like two or three years ago. And now it's getting to the point where it's startlingly good, which is kind of delightful in a way. And it's also kind of scary at the same time. So it's yeah, got two right. emotional hooks for people to, to, to fasten their teeth into. Yeah. And it seems like the tech has reached that like cultural breakthrough moment, you know, where it's kind of gone from being this esoteric thing that only nerds know about to uh, the rest of us learning about it. So yeah. anyway, I think it's really remarkable. I wonder whether it was just me like paying hyper attention to the issue since I just uh, did research on it or whether it really is permeating the culture. And I think it's the latter. Yeah, I think so too. I'm tuned into technology sources, so they've been talking about it for you know, probably the last four or five months, but it's definitely picking up speed within more mainstream outlets. Yeah. So hopefully today's episode will be the second most timely one we've ever done after the last episode, <laughs> um, because we're taping this episode on the first Friday in January 2023, and I've spent the last week... Uh, saying Happy New Year to my neighbors and friends and colleagues at work. But I've always wondered why New Year's Day falls on January 1st. And I think I mentioned at the end of the last episode that I recently read that New Year's Day is the closest thing we have to a global holiday. Mm -hmm. And yet that's not quite true. And so I've wanted you to look into the idea of New Year's Day, I mean, how it arose, and specifically why it's on January 1st. What did you find? Well, first, thank you, as always, for the question. Um, and transparently, I went into this one thinking the answer would be pretty simple and straightforward. I was actually a little afraid we wouldn't have enough to talk about. Hmm. But as it turned out, the answer is surprisingly complex. So when you step back and think about it, January 1st is kind of a strange date on which to celebrate the new year. It's in the middle of winter, but not the exact middle. The winter solstice is a couple weeks earlier. Right. And it's not in the spring when plants are starting to send out new shoots and flowers are starting to bloom. There's really nothing about the first week of January that says new beginning. So why was it chosen to be the beginning of the year and who did the choosing? Turns out the answer is found in a quick tour of ancient Roman history. The first Roman calendar that uh, was recorded didn't have a month called January. 
In fact, it only had 10 months, and the first month was March. The last month was December, and in between those two months, there was a winter period that had no name. The first Roman calendar was entirely focused on the agricultural year, and there were no agricultural activities between December and March, so the calendar just kind of ignored that period. This 10-month structure, by the way, can still be seen in the names of some of our months. March was named after the god Mars, the Roman god of war, and the head of their pantheon. If March is month number one, then September is month number seven, and the Latin word for seven is septum. Mm. The word for eight, octo, gives us October. The word for nine, novum, gives us November. And the word for ten, decum, gives us December. Wow. I've already learned something, and we're two minutes into this. (laughs) I didn't know that. Never heard that all my life. Yeah. I was vaguely aware of the September 7th connection, but I never understood why that was. And the other reason I knew that is because my birthday is in September, and so I'm hyper aware to September trivia. Hmm. But as for the other months, it was brand new for me. In those ancient days, Romans celebrated the New Year on March 1st, which makes sense given that spring is the time of year when crops are planted. At some point, and historians differ on when this happened, Rome added two months to its calendar to fill that winter gap. The Roman historian Livy wrote that this was an innovation by the second king of Rome, Numa Pompilius, around 700 BCE. Modern historians agree that it probably happened in 450 BCE when Rome's first code of laws was published. The two new months were called Januarius and Februarius, and they were initially given 29 and 28 days, respectively. This new 12-month Roman calendar was based on observations of the moon. It was a lunar calendar. So it would slowly drift out of alignment with the seasons as the years went by because 12 lunar cycles is about 11 days short of a full solar year. Right. So not quite a year. Right. Yeah. Yeah. A special board of priests called the Pontifices were responsible for meeting every now and then, calculating how far out of whack the calendar was, and announcing how many days everyone should skip over in order to bring these things back into alignment with the seasons. (laughs) Keep these guys in mind because we'll be coming back to them later. I should mention here that classical Latin had no J sound in it, as anyone who has seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade should remember since that fact played into a crucial scene in that movie. Originally, the letter J was a medieval innovation. It was just the letter I with a fancy little flourish at the bottom. Over time, it came to be used to designate a consonant sound that's part of English but not classical Latin. This means that the first of our two new months was pronounced as if it started with the letter Y, Januarius. But we're talking about January 1st today, so I'm going to use modern pronunciations going forward. Just keep in mind that Julius Caesar or more correctly, Julius Kaiser, would have wondered why we're mispronouncing so many words. Okay. Anyway, Januarius was named after the god Janus, who is probably the most important member of the Roman pantheon who no one today has ever heard of. Joe, there is a common profession today, the name of which is based on the same root as this god's name. Can you think of what it is? I don't know the answer to that, Mark. Why don't you tell me? The answer is janitor, because originally that job title meant keeper of the gate. And Janus was the god of gates, doorways, archways, and thresholds. Ancient Rome was filled with ceremonial gateways that were used to officially kick off big, large, important enterprises. For instance, when the Roman legions were marching off to war, they'd exit the city through one of Janus's temples, and the doorway to that temple would remain open for as long as the war continued. 
The Romans as a people were kind of obsessed with good and bad luck and strongly believed that there were lucky and unlucky ways to make a beginning on whatever you intended to do. Janus was the god you would pray and sacrifice to in the hopes that your luck would be good. Janus was also a very distinctive-looking god because he had more than one face. Statues of him show a figure with a second face on the back of his head, because, like a doorway, you can go both in and out. There are even versions with four faces, since there were some Roman portals that had four exits. Huh. I've often thought that people born in January are two-faced, so now we have <laughs> yes. support for that argument. Thousands of years of history behind that claim. Mm-hmm. There's a bit of a chicken or the egg problem with Janus, because in addition to being the god of doorways and archways, he was also the god of beginnings. The question that no one can answer today is which of these came first? Mm. Was he first the god of gates and archways and came later to be associated with beginnings, or was it the other way around? In any case, he was invoked at the beginning of every religious ritual, even the ones dedicated to other gods, and the first part of the day was said to be sacred to him. Since Janus was the god of beginnings, right from the start there was some sentiment that January should be the first month of the year. And since he faced both forwards and back, he was the perfect god for that moment in time when everyone is looking back at the year just completed and forward to the year to come. Mm. It's not clear when the switch from March 1st was made, and it might have been a gradual process that took centuries, but by 153 BC at the latest, January 1st was officially the first day of the Roman year. The Romans offered sacrifice to Janus and made promises of good conduct for the coming year. It was also common for friends and neighbors to exchange gifts and wish each other well in the coming year. So now let's jump forward about 100 years to the mid-40s BCE. The Old Republic had become corrupt and was on its last legs, and while Julius Caesar was nominally a consul, one of the Roman heads of state, sort of like a president or prime minister, in just two short years he'd quit pretending and declare himself dictator for life in 44 BCE. Caesar had previously spent some time in Egypt, where he got very friendly with Cleopatra, and he also met up with an astronomer named Sosigenes, who had an idea for a new calendar based on the passage of the sun rather than the moon. Caesar was thoroughly sick of the pontifices and their adjustments to the calendar because they were politicians in their own right and so had done the job pretty badly, and sometimes they didn't bother to do it at all. The Roman civic calendar was now three full months ahead of the solar calendar. Caesar decided to solve the problem once and for all, drawing on the work of Sosigenes. The Julian calendar, introduced in 46 BCE, added extra days to that year to realign the calendar with the seasons, assigned the same number of days to the months as we have today, and introduced the concept of the leap year. It also reaffirmed that January 1st was the first day of the year. When Caesar was assassinated later in 44 BCE, the month in which he was born— then called Quinctilus, was renamed July in his honor. The Julian calendar was standard throughout the empire when Christianity later came to prominence. In the Roman province of Judea, for instance, that calendar would have been in use the year that Jesus was born. However, medieval Christianity started to feel uncomfortable about some of the things they'd inherited from Rome, including New Year's practices that had originally been dedicated to a pagan god. In 567, the Council of Tours announced that dancing was forbidden on that day and decreed that it should be observed as a day of penitence. Later, January 1st was sanctified in Christian nations by naming it as the day on which the baby Jesus was circumcised. Huh. Yeah, that's something that's fallen out of practice. I can't remember the last time I commemorated the day that Jesus was circumcised. No. 
But now that I know it's a holiday, I can maybe do something with it. Right. Yeah. At various times and in various places throughout medieval Europe, the church celebrated a new year on December 25th, March 1st, March 25th, which was the day of the Feast of the Annunciation, or on Easter. Meanwhile, for all other purposes, the new year continued to start on January 1st. So there was sort of a disjunction between when it was religiously observed and when articles of state would consider the beginning of the year. Which brings us to 1582, when a new calendar adjustment was needed because it turns out the astronomer Sosigenes had made an error in his calculations. So, Joe, would you like to guess how far off Sosigenes was in calculating the length of a solar year, given that he was using mathematical and astronomical methods from the first century BC? Again, I have no idea, but I'll take a guess. Was he off by a month? Uh, he was not. His calculations were off by 11 minutes and 14 seconds per year. Oh, that's pretty close Yeah, for an ancient scientist. Yeah, definitely he gets an A in my book. The Julian calendar had been rolling along for 1,600 years by this point, but being 11 minutes wrong every year, it went off by a day every 128 years. By 1582, it was about 10 days off. Pope Gregory XIII announced a new calendar that would fix this problem by way of a new leap year system that's too complicated to explain here. If our listeners want to go down that rat hole, they can find it in the sources I'll publish to our Facebook page. The Gregorian calendar gave the church's blessing to January 1st as the first day of the new year, but that was immediately controversial because this was right in the middle of the Protestant Reformation. And by the year 1582, large swaths of Europe were convinced that nothing good could come out of the Vatican. Some people even accused Pope Gregory of trying to trick good Christians into worshiping on the wrong days. Five countries adopted the new calendar right away. Italy, Poland, Portugal, Spain, and most of France. But it took a while everywhere else in Western Europe, and the Eastern Rite churches were also reluctant to abandon tradition. Russia didn't switch to the Gregorian calendar until after the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution. Wow. And the Eastern Orthodox Church still follows the Julian calendar when setting its liturgical year, but it maps those dates onto the Gregorian calendar. For instance, the Christian Orthodox New Year is celebrated this year on January 14th. In the year 2100, the continued drift of the Julian calendar will move that date to January 15th. Britain didn't adopt the Reformed calendar until 1752. And until then, England, Ireland, and the British colonies officially recognized March 25th, the date the Feast of the Annunciation, as the first day of the year. So there was a period of 170 years, from 1582 to 1752, when two different calendars were used in Europe and the colonies. Even in areas that stuck to the Julian calendar, January 1st was popularly celebrated as New Year's Day, because why have just one party when you could have two? <laughs> right. Japan, Korea, and China started using the Gregorian calendar in 1873, 1896, and 1912, respectively. Russia came on board in 1918, as I said. Most of Eastern Europe in the 1910s and 20s, Greece in 1923, and Turkey in 1927. Saudi Arabia was the most recent country to make the switch. They didn't officially adopt the Gregorian calendar until 2016, just seven years ago. Huh. 
You know, Mark, I was about to ask you, how could the nations of the world have possibly coordinated things like meetings and all in an era when there were two different calendars being used? And then I thought, well, the answer to that question is that countries were so insular for so many centuries until probably the 19th century, you know? Yeah. There wasn't really a, a need to coordinate calendars. Yep. Right? Yep. And anyone who did, like perhaps a ship captain or whatever, would just probably take that onto himself personally. Yeah. I think it's easier to understand this juggling of calendars if you remember there were three basic entities that were involved. There was the church, there was the state, and there were individual actors. And so the church might recognize one date as New Year's Day, the state might recognize a second date as New Year's Day, and a person would be free to recognize both dates as New Year's Day. And so whatever their religious convictions and their their personal predilections were, they found the dates that worked best for them. So still today, there are four holdouts from the Gregorian calendar. Joe, can you guess the four countries that have not yet adopted it? Boy, I'm going to go 0 for 3 now on these the quiz. Uh, <laughs> these have not been easy questions. Yeah. I'm going to guess that they're countries that are just outcast from the rest of the civilized world. So maybe Iran and Sudan, countries like that. That's my guess. Not bad at all. Iran is, in fact, one of the countries. The other three are Ethiopia, Nepal, and Afghanistan. They officially Mm. still use their own calendars. So that's the long and complicated historical road that led to a broad worldwide consensus that January 1st is the first day of the new year. As you noted in your original question, though, there are other new years that are still celebrated today. Yes. A prime example of this is the Chinese Lunar New Year, which is actually a bit of a misnomer. It's celebrated on the second new moon, so lunar, following the winter solstice, which is a solar event. So technically, it's a lunar solar new year. This rite is part of a Chinese calendar that dates back as far as the 14th century BCE, and the date of the new year usually falls between January 21st and February 20th. The Jewish calendar is also lunisolar, so the date of the, of the Jewish new year, or Rosh Hashanah, shifts from year to year, but usually falls in the month of September or October. Purely lunar calendars, like the Islamic calendar or the Indian calendar, lend themselves to observances that steadily drift through the seasons. This year, the Islamic New Year falls on July 19th, and the Hindu Diwali festival falls on November 12th. So there are many parts of the world that celebrate the New Year at different points in the calendar. You're right, though, that January 1st is the most widely celebrated. And I'd say the main reason for that is the fact that New Year celebrations today are largely secular. They started out as rites in honor of a Roman god, and in the medieval period, they were associated with the circumcision of baby Jesus, but nowadays it's just champagne, silly hats, music, and dancing. The New Year's celebrations that remain religious today are on the periphery because you have to be a member of that faith to take part in them, and what's left for the rest of us is just a big party, so everybody is invited. And maybe that's the one thing we all can agree on as a species. From Julius Caesar on down, we do like a good party. Yes. So January 1st is kind of the cultural holiday, and there are these vestigial religious holidays kind of in the background. But the cultural holiday that's celebrated by virtually the entire world is January 1st, correct? 
Yes, I had some Chinese American colleagues in my previous employment, and they would celebrate both. And it was pretty much a way of locking into both halves of their identity. As Chinese Americans, they celebrated New Year's Day on January 1st. And as Chinese Americans, they celebrated the Lunar New Year. And so it was a way for them basically to connect with different aspects of who they saw themselves as. What is the purpose of the leap year? Is there some astronomical error in the current Gregorian calendar that makes it necessary for us to gain an extra day every four years in order to reset and put things back in balance, similar to what you were describing with the Julian calendar? So if we just measured the year in terms of 365 days, it would drift away from the seasons because a solar year is not exactly divisible by 365. There's a little bit left over. So you throw in a leap year when the gap has extended by a single day so you can jump forward that day and get things back to alignment. By throwing in that one, we make sure that our calendar doesn't go off from the seasons by more than a single day. Right. So that explanation makes perfect sense to me. The thing that gets me, though, is that we, we dumped the Julian calendar because it was imprecise, and we've adopted a Gregorian calendar that is also imprecise. It's less imprecise. Isn't it? Yeah. The Julian calendar had too many leap years in it. The, the Gregorian calendar removed some of the leap years. Right. So that's my answer to your question, but I wanted to say a few things before we go about the part of New Year's that most people probably wonder about, namely the song Auld Lang Syne. Yes. It's a traditional part of an American New Year celebration, but no one knows what the song is about. And I thought Billy Crystal's character in When Harry Met Sally put it best. What does this song mean? My whole life, I don't know what this song means. I mean, should old acquaintance be forgot? Does that mean that we should forget old acquaintances? It doesn't mean that if we happen to forget them, we should remember them, which is not possible because we already forgot. Well, that's well said. I pretty much agree with him. Mm -hmm. So what does Auld Lang Syne mean, and why do we sing it on December 31st? Originally, it was a Scottish folk song, which Robert Burns wrote down in 1788 after he heard it performed. In 1789, Burns' version was set to a traditional tune, and that's the version we know today. The song became a traditional part of Scottish New Year celebrations, and when people from Scotland emigrated to different parts of the world, they took the song with them. In the early 20th century, a Canadian big band musician named Guy Lombardo heard it performed, and he later played the song with his band on a New Year's Eve radio show in 1929. Lombardo and his Royal Canadians went on to become a New Year's institution, performing on the radio and on television beginning in 1956 until his death in the mid-1970s. I remember him well, Mark. Yeah. Big part of my childhood, listening to Guy Lombardo's rendition every New Year's Day. Right. Or on New Year's Eve. And he's the one that made Auld Lang Syne a fixture in American celebrations. As for the lyrics, Auld Lang Syne in Scotch means literally old long since, or more figuratively, old times. The phrase for Auld Lang Syne therefore can be taken to mean for old time's sake. The song is about what we remember and what we forget. I hope I gave you a few things worth remembering today. Well, thanks. Yeah, that's a good answer to the question. I do have a few thoughts about this. Um, one is when you were reciting the history, I was thinking about our Christmas podcast and how there are some similarities here. 
first in the placement of January 1st, kind of being sort of around the winter solstice, but not quite. But yeah. there's a connection to the coldest, shortest day of the year, similar to Christmas and its placement. You know, mm -hmm. that struck me. And also uh, another thing comes to mind is like the arbitrariness of some of this, you know, Christians rejecting Roman traditions. It just seems like the creation of the calendars and the, and the rejection of the calendars has this element of arbitrariness that seems kind of funny to me. I think there's a tendency for the institutions, the assumptions of our world, we tend to think that they have to be self-evident, like natural laws. And when you actually go back and look at the history, it seems like a lot of it just kind of happened for no particular great reason. Right. Like we have January in the winter, not because it's because January 1st, New Year's Day was meant to be a mid-winter celebration, but just because there was a gap in the Roman calendar that needed to be filled, and they filled it with a month that just happened to be named after the God of Beginnings, and then things picked up speed from there. So yeah, it does feel accidental that January 1st is New Year's Day, but it's apparently an accident that works for people because it even when the Christian church was trying to abolish it, they could not get people to stop celebrating it. Yeah, well, that also, there's also a parallel to Christmas with that, you know, denounced as a pagan holiday by a lot of the Puritans, sure. and yet people couldn't quit it, you know? Thank you. That was very instructive. I, I now understand a lot more about that than I did before. So are you ready for the question for next time? Sure, yeah. So over Christmas this year, I was reading a book called A Pilgrimage to Eternity by Timothy Egan. The author, a Catholic questioning his faith in the spotty history of his church, describes a very nearly post-Christian Europe in which 70% of young people report that they don't belong to any religion. And that's shocking to some people because, of course, for nearly 2,000 years, Western Europe and its former colonies have first and foremost defined themselves as Christian nations. So I have three overlapping questions for you, Joe. Uh-oh. If we take it as granted that religion is destined to play a smaller and smaller role in our societies going forward, what will we gain by religion's demise? What will we lose? And what might step in to fill the spaces in people's lives that religion once occupied? Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it starts with the assumption that religion is a declining force, and I think I probably agree with that but I haven't researched the topic, so uh, I might change my mind after looking into it. Good question. Okay, and I look forward to discussing it with you. Okay, well, one thing we didn't discuss today, I realize at the end, is New Year's resolutions. With the forward and backward-facing Janice, it occurs to me now that maybe one of the best New Year's resolutions you, the mansplaining listener, could make is to support mansplaining, <laughs> maybe by binge listening to this podcast. Yeah. yeah. We get a report every single week of the number of downloads you guys have made. So you could make this a really nice week for us by just downloading a whole bunch of episodes. Just put a smile on our face. Yes. And if you think of it in the context of a New Year's resolution, it's so much easier than losing weight or quitting smoking. Right. And we will never come back and accuse you of having not followed through on your resolution. And all you have to do is go to our Facebook page, Mansplaining the Podcast. Check our sources, leave a comment, ask us a question about what you just heard. 
rave about the intellectual depth of these analyses that Mark and I are giving you and suggest topics for future episodes. We appreciate any and all feedback quite seriously. We read it and we appreciate it. And we will get back to you if you have questions for us. Please give us a rating. Please write a review on whether, whatever app you use to listen to this podcast. And we thank you in advance for that. That's all for this episode of Mansplaining. That was Mark and I'm Joe. And we'll talk to you next time. See you then. That's it for this edition of Mansplaining. Mansplaining is brought to you by Joe and Mark and nobody else. Thank you for hanging out with us for a little bit and we'll see you next time. 